Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is historian and paranormal researcher Amanda Woomer, who is the creator of Spook Eats, a blog detailing her travels, both in the United States and further afield, visiting a range of bars, cafes, restaurants and hotels, all with an unusual, spooky story to tell and very tasty food to eat. Added to this, she has recently released her book, A Haunted Atlas of Western New York, a fun, detailed resource of supernatural goings-on in her part of the world, containing over 130 haunted locations in the region. I really like the concept of the Spook Eats blog, and think combining a love of food with a fascination for the weird is a novel approach to paranormal investigation. Without any further ado, here is the episode. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, You're very welcome. Uh, I really like your blog. I think it's a nice mixture of two different subjects. To start off with, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what got you into these things. Um, So I was born and raised in Buffalo, New York, and I had my first paranormal experience when I was about seven years old. Um, I think that happens for most people who are in the paranormal community. They have an experience as a child and maybe they convince themselves that they didn't really see what they thought they saw or or maybe they fully embrace it right away. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But For me, it kind of started this really innocent curiosity, questioning kind of what I saw, what could it mean, and probably about six or seven years later, the TV show Ghost Hunters came out, and all of a sudden, the paranormal was the coolest thing in the world. Everyone was eating it up and loving it. So when my family and I, we would go on family vacations, we would go to places in America like Key West and Salem and Gettysburg, places that have a lot of history, but then also a lot of ghost stories associated with it. And I was just eating it up. I absolutely loved it. Um, I started going on ghost hunts um, when I was about 14, 15 years old. So I've been doing that for a really long time, but it was always a very innocent curiosity. But in 2015, my little brother passed away after a cancer diagnosis, and it was his death that kind of took the innocent curiosity that we both shared and kind of transformed it into a passion for me. So I really started investigating hardcore and researching, and that's kind of where um, Spook Eats, my website, came from. Um, In my thoughts, I figured... I can't be the only person that's ever lost a loved one and then questioned what came next. But unfortunately, so many places that you see highlighted on TV are places that aren't really accessible to the general public. You know, you have to be on an investigation team or you have to be famous. Um, So I wanted to really start highlighting locations that are open to the general public with haunted restaurants, bars, and hotels, places that are already ready and willing to let anyone in. And for the price of a pint or maybe an appetizer, you can experience the paranormal and hopefully find some answers for yourself. Yeah, of course. Have you found that since you first had your interest in this subject that the understanding of what ghosts are has changed? Um, For me, I think it's actually gotten more muddled and confusing. Yeah. <laughs> um, just because there's so many different theories out there and ideas. And, you know, a lot of people say, you know, there are no experts in the paranormal and there are no facts in the paranormal. Everything is all hypothetical and all theoretical. So you kind of latch on to the ideas that you gravitate more towards. Um, There are some things I've heard from people where I'm like, I don't think that's it. Um, And I think, honestly, I really continue to stand by what I've always thought ghosts are. Um, So that really hasn't changed too much. But I'm trying to find other ways of explaining things, which I think 
is essential for a paranormal investigator and researcher to be open-minded and to be willing to possibly change your opinion or change your views based off of other people's evidence or other people's ideas or research. So it's a fun, ever-evolving subject matter. Mm. So when you started your blog, was there a place that you knew would be a great location to start with? Well, I... It's been a a brainchild of mine for several years now, even before my brother got sick and passed away. It was something that I really wanted to do. And about a year and a half after he passed away, my family and I, we were out in Colorado for a vacation and we were at the Stanley Hotel, which is the hotel for the inspiration for Stephen King's book, The Shining. And as I was standing in front of it, I was like, this is it. This is going to be my very first article. So while I was there, I kind of was doing research also. So of course, my family's like, Amanda, like we have to go. And I was like, no, just one more photo. I need one more photo for the website. So um, but and it's fun because every single place I travel to now, I seek out the haunted restaurants and the haunted hotels. Um, Because my feeling on the matter is you have to eat wherever you are. So why not eat someplace that has a lot of history and maybe even some ghost stories thrown in? Definitely. That sounds great. Um, Going back to the Stanley Hotel, what was that place like and what is its history? So the Stanley Hotel um, is it was one of like the first major hotels out in the Rocky Mountains. It was actually originally built for um, a gentleman who suffered from tuberculosis. And at the time they said, you know, sunshine and fresh air, that cures tuberculosis. So he built his hotel. And there were a lot of strange occurrences that happened. Um, My favorite story is in one of the rooms, um, a maid was filling the gas lamps and they actually exploded on her and a fire started, but she did not die. She survived. She was totally fine. But After she passed away from completely different circumstances years later, her ghost actually returns to that specific hotel room where the accident happened. So I always thought that was kind of a weird little story where a ghost haunts a place that they didn't die, but they just had probably a very traumatic experience. Um, Today, it's famous in America for Stephen King and The Shining. Um, That's what everyone goes there for, I'm pretty sure. Um, And there's tons of rooms that are purportedly haunted. Of course, the most famous one is room 217. Supposedly, that's the room that Stephen King stayed in um, when he was inspired to write The Shining. That's the room that's in The Shining. So it's a fun place to visit for history buffs as well as horror movie fans and horror novel fans. Um, When I was there, I didn't particularly enjoy it because it is a very, very, very fancy hotel and it's at least when I was there it may have changed and also it was my very first kind of location for spookies so I wasn't exactly sure what to be prepared for but I found that the hotel was not very welcoming to tourists unless you were staying there and I I understood like the staircase was blocked off for only guests to go to the upper floors totally understand that you don't want random people running around the hotel rooms, but even like the lobby area, the gift shop and the um, bar and restaurant where I was checking out, people weren't particularly inviting or welcoming. And even like when I told them, like, I want to go in and get a cocktail and I want to get some food, I'm here to spend money. Um, Even then they weren't particularly welcoming. So I would like to be able to get back there and see if maybe it was just a bad day. Um, (laughs) I'm hoping that I'm hoping that's what it was because so many people love the Stanley Hotel. And I don't know if it's just the reputation that the hotel has or the connection that it has with Stephen King or if it's just kind of like a snooty upper class hotel, which I I would like to think that that's not it because Colorado is such a cool state. The Rocky Mountains. I mean, it's so rugged and gritty. I love the area. And so that's, I think, why it was so jarring that the Stanley Hotel wasn't as inviting and welcoming. So I got to go back someday. Do you find that, I mean, one thing I'm thinking is that in terms of the senses that are used to perceive the paranormal, you know, sight and sound and smell are probably the main ones. But do you find that eating somewhere, having that sort of 
not that the food is associated with the experiences at the locations that you go to, but do you feel like perhaps engaging in a meal and engaging your taste buds, does that give the location you're at an ability to sort of appreciate it in a different way? I do. I really do think that way. I always say this to people that food is one of those connecting things that every single culture has their specific food. You know, every town has that one restaurant. Oh, you have to go there or you have to try this dish. And food is so regional and so specific to where you're traveling that you can't help but get a better appreciation for not only a country and a town, but even a, a restaurant or a bar or a pub. And a couple places that I've been to, th- the employees and the staff have said that they see, you know, the ghost of a former owner or the former cook, and they see their ghosts. And almost always they're interacting somehow with the bar or the alcohol or the food or the kitchen. So it's very interesting that in these locations where I'm focusing on the hospitality aspect of tourism, that the ghosts are also focused on those things. A lot of times they're associated with the foods and some places they serve historically accurate foods and dishes. So that's just another way for you to connect to not only a location, but also the history of the location. Hmm. And going back to the Stanley Hotel, I know that there have been some paranormal investigations there, haven't there? A couple of the people who are involved in the Hellier documentary, they've done documentaries that called secrets of the stanley so do you feel in in that regard that the that hotel is sort of more welcoming now to people investigating i do hope so because for the longest time i had this like nasty taste in my mouth and then i started watching hellier and i was like they're from the stanley hotel where were they when i was there (laughs) (laughs) so i do think i've been told this many times that Whenever new management takes over, they kind of go through growing pains, whereas years ago, they were really into the paranormal. Then they tried to downplay it a little bit. And, you know, again, they're really into the paranormal and hosting events and horror conventions and different things like that. So I I, I really feel in like my soul that I was just there at a bad time, um, especially because now with like the popularity of Hellier, um, and the Stanley Hotel and how those guys are like the household investigators of the Stanley Hotel makes me think that I was just there at the, the wrong time and I have to get back there. Cool. So let's move on to somewhere else. In terms of the places that you visited, what really stands out for you? Um, For me, I actually have two places that really stand out. The first in regards to its food. Um, It's called the Old Canal Inn in Nutley, New Jersey. Um, It's about 40 minutes south of New York City. So don't go there right now. (laughs) Um, It's it's not safe. Um, But um, this place is great. It's um, the complete definition of a dive bar. Like you walk in, it's dark. The floor is sticky from probably decades of beer being spilled. Um, but it's home to the death seat. And the legend surrounding the death seat is that there's this stool at the front of the bar by the window. And four people who have sat in that seat have died of a heart attack while sitting in that seat. Um, Uh-oh. so yeah, so don't sit in it. No. <laughs> um, so it's now barred off. You can't sit on it anymore. Um, but the owners, they actually created, um, a meal called the death seat burger platter. And it's basically, it's a cheeseburger. It's, this is the epitome of like American junk food. It's a cheeseburger, um, with mashed potatoes on top, cheddar cheese, jalapeno peppers, and then it is beer battered and deep fried. <laughs> Uh, it's ridiculous um and so i joke saying well if you can't sit in the death seat and die of a heart attack you eat this burger and you probably will die of a heart attack (laughs) (laughs) um but it's it's actually really delicious i couldn't eat the whole thing because it was a monstrosity of a burger um but i just loved it that this place saw their you know their ghost story their urban legend and instead of trying to hide it they were they decided to highlight it and create a dish out of it so that was kind of refreshing because so many places i go to try to downplay the hauntings um so that place is probably one of my favorite meals that i've ever been to 
Um, and then the other one, which I, I saw just closed today because of the sickness going around, but um, is the Drovers Inn up in Scotland. My family and I were in the UK over the summer and all of my friends, I asked them, what are some places I have to stop at? And every single one of them said the Drovers Inn. So I was like, okay, we, we got to go. And we walked in and it's just the epitome of an 18th century pub. Um, you know, it's dark, there's candles burning, it's taxidermy everywhere. The floor is sticky from centuries of beer being spilled, which I just, I eat that up. Um, and it was just, it could have been the charm of like, here I am, a New York girl in Scotland after years of dreaming of being there. Um, but it was just for me, it was one of those quintessential pubs that I... It'll go down as probably one of my favorite places. The food was also wonderful, but just like the ambiance of it all, just it felt spooky. It felt haunted. And a lot of times I visit places that they're older buildings, you know, 100, 200 years old, and they're completely gutted inside and redesigned to look modern and sleek. And I hate that. I can't stand it. I hate it so much. Um, if it's a historic building, it should look like a historic building. Um, so it was nice to walk into the Drovers Inn and just kind of, you know, if you take away like the people on their cell phones and, you know, the fluorescent lighting over the bar, you could be like, yeah, like I could see Rob Roy hanging out here. Like there he is in the corner. Um, so those two places for me are like my standout places, at least for now. I'm always visiting new places and getting to know new places, but those two have a special place in my heart. Was there a particular ghost story associated with uh, Drovers Inn? There was a bunch that I was trying to get out of people. Um, problem is, I started talking to people, and then everyone kept chiming in with different stories, and it wasn't very helpful. Um, one at a time. One, one at a time. <laughs> I know, right? Please, please. Um, the one that um, sticks out in my mind, because it was the first one that someone started to tell me before they got cut off, was... Um, there is like the ghost of a child that's like dripping wet. Um, and it's believed that they drowned nearby. And for whatever reason, they've come to the Drovers Inn to kind of spend eternity, I guess. Um, but and I know at the Drovers Inn, like you can stay overnight in one of their rooms. And a lot of people report seeing this child. Unfortunately, some people say it's a girl. Some people say it's a boy. So there's like no specifics that I was getting from anyone. Um, uh, but it was just interesting that the detail of them being soaking wet and dripping and the association with someone drowning nearby. It was just a cool connection that I appreciated before the wave of other stories came came bombarding. Mm, it sounds fabulous. I mean, from your investigations and the places you visited, do you feel like there's a commonality with these locations? Do, do you think that you're getting a sense of what's going on? For me, what I've come to notice, and a lot of times it's hard to hold an investigation because I'm there during business hours. So you have people talking, and which is great for business, um, but not great for investigation. Um, luckily, a lot of times people will take me down into the basements, up into the attics, to places where patrons don't generally have access to. And what I've found just from talking with employees and staff members and talking to other patrons who frequent these places a lot and conducting these investigations is that, you know, a lot of people associate ghost stories and hauntings with very negative feelings and negative locations, you know, whether it's a war or sickness or you're in a jail cell or an orphanage. And what I have found is that, you know, yes, hauntings are associated with negative traumas and, and negative events, but they can also be associated with positive events and happiness. You know, these are bars and pubs and restaurants, and for many of them, they've always been these sort of establishments. They've always been some sort of, you know, rest stop or a, a tavern or a pub, and those centuries of happiness and joy and revelry um, has been just absorbed. And a lot of times the spirits that you come into contact with in these places are friendly and 
kind of curious more so than the negative haunts. You know, so many times you see on TV like, oh, it's a demon. And in my mind, I'm always thinking like, or it could just be kind of like a grumpy ghost, just like people are <laughs> jerk. Yeah, like you meet a person, you're like, oh, you're really nice or you're a total jerk. I don't like you. Same thing in death. You know, theoretically, you'll have friendly ghosts and you'll have kind of more nasty ghosts and you just avoid the nasty ones and you kind of focus more on the delights. Um, and that's kind of what I have found going to these hotels and restaurants is that nine times out of ten, the experience, the overall experience, including the food and working with the staff, but then also trying to reach out to spirits and kind of figure out what exactly is going on. Nine times out of ten, it's a very pleasant experience, um, which I think is something that not a lot of people associate with the paranormal. So many times it's associated with dark and gloomy and scary when it could be a, a pleasant experience if you look in the right places. Hmm. I mean, I guess what I was trying to ask was, do you think that it's the the building or do you think that it's the the people that create hauntings but i'm guessing that it's an aspect of both isn't it it's a combination of those things i would say that it is both um you know a lot of people believe that you know spirits and ghosts is just energy that's absorbed and you know it can be negative energy and it can be positive energy so if you have you know people who are there whether it was a hundred years ago or just last week people are at these places to you know, have a good time and have fun. So their energy is absorbed. And then a lot of times these places are very historic. They've been around for, if not decades, then centuries, um, you know, and so you kind of have like that perfect storm of a, a large number of people passing through the doors over time, but then also an expansive amount of time that this place has been standing. So I think it's kind of a mixture of the two where you have the people, but then you also have the location. Because hmm, some buildings do really have a personality, don't they? Oh, absolutely. You can just tell sometimes just from looking at the outside and then you walk in and you'll know right away if you're going to have a good night or a terrible time just by the <laughs> energy of the building. And especially when they're old and creaky and, oh, I love, I love old buildings. <laughs> Yeah, me too. I mean, and they've been in that same place for a long time, haven't they? They have a sense of permanence, I suppose. I mean, people, living things move from day to day to day, and they're not quite the same each day, but a building can sort of have, it's more permanent in a way. And perhaps that's part of it. It can sort of almost in a way have, have memories. I I wonder about that sometimes, if that's what's happening. Yeah. And it feels almost like buildings, especially, again, like when I was in over in England and Scotland, it was amazing where they would say, oh, this pub dates back to the 13th century, but it's not the oldest in town. And I'd be like, oh, of course it's not. <laughs> like, why would it be? Um, and like for us, like I'm in New York and in the expanse of America, that's one of the older states. So we have some older buildings, but they date back to like the 1800s, which is really cute by like everyone else's standards. Um, but I really find, especially when I was in England, Scotland, that the buildings were almost like immortal, where you have these centuries and these generations of people just coming and going and passing through. Sometimes they're there for a day or an afternoon. Other times they go there every single day for 50 years. Um, and yet these buildings are here hundreds and hundreds of years seeing, you know, war and seeing times of peace and seeing times of sickness. And it's just, it's almost like a, an immense time capsule of sorts. And you can't help but think that things get kind of caught in the corners of the building and just kind of linger there over the centuries. Mm, and especially if, I mean, a, a classic ghost would be something where there's been an episode of violence in the building, a murder or something like that. Have you been to many locations where that's happened? 
I've been to a few. Um, some of them are just like urban legends hmm. where according to the history of the building, oh yeah, someone was murdered right over there, but there's no actual like evidence of it, historically speaking. Um, but I, um, like I said, I love visiting Gettysburg, um, which was a major battle during the American Civil War. And two of those buildings in particular um, have turned into hotels and restaurants. Um, and so that energy, the whole region's energy is very, very heavy um, and really like weighs down on you. I can only spend about two or three days there before I'm like, you know what? Like, let's go somewhere else. Like, let's 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 leave for 20 minutes and eat somewhere else. Um, and I find that the places, unfortunately, the places with those negative and traumatic events do have infinitely more energy about the place than like the happy go lucky places that I was talking about before. Um, so I have been to a few of those places. They are some of my favorites just because they're almost like so alive and energetic. Um, but you can only handle so much. And I don't consider myself like sensitive in any way. Like I have some friends who are very, very sensitive. They're empaths. They pick up on things. I don't think I am really at all. I always say I'm as sensitive as a rock. Um, <laughs> But <laughs> Gettysburg is one of those places, and especially the Farnsworth house is the one in particular in Gettysburg that is just, as soon as you look at the outside, it still has bullet holes from the Civil War in it. Um, it's it's heavy, and it really, it weighs down on you. So you have to focus on enjoying your meal and then just getting out of there. Right, okay. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the Farnsworth house? So the Farnsworth house, it was um, just a regular family home. Um, when it was um, first built in um, the mid-1800s, and then when the American Civil War came through. Um, Battle of Gettysburg lasted about three days in July, and um, the Farnsworth House was taken over by the Confederate troops, um, and the attic was used for sharpshooters, and like I said, bullet holes are still seen on the side of the building. Um, since then, it's been transformed into a historic hotel, and um, a restaurant. And they've done just an amazing job at preserving the integrity of the building. Um, it's not one of those buildings that have been gutted from the inside and restored to, you know, oh, we're, it's 21st century modern crap. Sorry. <laughs> um, it's, it's old. It's historic. And the integrity is just, it's, it's there. And you can't help but appreciate that. And there's uh, a bunch of different ghost stories surrounding it from the attic down to the basement. There's a little boy there. Um, there's a young woman who haunts it. And they're very protective of not only their history, but also their hauntings. Um, only specific tour groups are allowed inside um, to showcase the attic and the basement. Um, if you want to, you can spend the night if you're brave enough. Um, and then um, you can also enjoy uh, a meal in their dining rooms, which they offer authentic 19th century American cuisine, um, which is very different from like modern American cuisine. Um, but it's it's some of the best food you can have around. It is not healthy for you at all, um, <laughs> but it's good. For, it's good for your soul. Right. OK. I mean, going back to what you were saying, I imagine... The events that happened at Gettysburg, there's so much raw emotion there and you know, violence and things like that. It's it's hard to imagine that it didn't have a sort of a psychic effect on the on the environment. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of investigators and researchers say, again, with the energy, you know, being, you know, energy can be neither created nor destroyed. So you have, you know, these young men who are building up all this courage to run across a field to, you know, basically shoot their brothers and their you know their fellow countrymen and then you know a musket hits them in the head and boom they're gone they're they drop down dead well where did all of that energy go hmm. it got absorbed into the land you know buildings have been built on these lands and, and you know so many of these buildings are historic and they they were standing at the time of the war so it's it's an interesting place because the people who live there are very much aware of the gravity of the events that happened there and they respect it and they want to share it with people and to kind of encourage conversation to make sure it never happens again. Um, but the 
energy about it, whether you're in a place like the Farnsworth house or if you're out on the battlefields or even staying in like a cheap motel on Main Street, it's every single place I feel like is haunted in that town and the energy just seeps into every aspect of life. Mm, it's, I, I completely understand that. Is there somewhere in America that you haven't been yet or not just America? Is there somewhere that you haven't been yet that you'd like to go to and explore and eat at? <laughs> One of my um, dream locations right now, which I'm trying to convince Mr. Spookeats to go, <laughs> um, is New Orleans down in Louisiana. Um, I always feel like that is like Spookeats in city form. It's haunted locations and also a major food town. Um, so I would love to get to um, New Orleans. Um, I would also love to get back to Edinburgh. Um, my family and I, we were there for only like two and a half days and we barely scratched the surface. Um, so I would like to get back there and just explore more of it. Um, we were actually there when the Fast and Furious movie was being filmed along the Royal Mile and the Royal Mile got shut down. Um, luckily it was the day we were leaving, but I was just like, come on, Hollywood. Like, this is my vacation. What are you doing? <laughs> um, so I didn't get to explore as much as I wanted to, um, and to experience as many haunted pubs as I wanted to, but, um, so I have to get back there, but definitely back to Edinburgh, down to New Orleans for sure. Those are hope that's hopefully my next trip. Oh, excellent. Yeah, Edinburgh's got so much going on. I mean, there's lots of um, Birkenhair operated there. It's got some great ghost tours and everything. So yeah, I mean, you've been, but yeah, you'd have a wonderful time. So you don't only have a blog, you've also written a book recently, uh, The Haunted Atlas of Western New York. Just tell us a little bit about that project and how you started that and, and some of the locations that are included in it. Well, when I wanted to try my hand at writing a book, I figured I'm I'm poor, so I can't afford to really travel anywhere. So let's focus on what I already know. I live in Western New York. There was a lot of history here um, throughout several American wars. So, you know, you have the history, you have some older buildings, you know, let me just start researching my hometown, my home area. And so I started just researching. First, it started with just ghost stories, and then it turned into urban legends, and then unexplained phenomenon, and then cryptid. So it kind of is like this all-encompassing uh, book of all things strange and unusual. But um, so with this book, it's meant to be sort of a, a tour guide or a roadmap to haunted locations. There is over 130 locations in eight counties um, here in Western New York, and they range from, you know, restaurants and hotels and bars, which is what I specialize in with Spook Eats, but then also um, cemeteries and roads and even hiking trails, um, all different things like that. And I include coordinates, walking tours, um, driving tours. Um, there's even a spooky bucket list included in there. So people can kind of like check off as they go, what places they've been to, what places they haven't. That was Mr. Spookeat's idea. Um, everyone says, oh, the spooky bucket list is my favorite part of the whole book. And I was like, oh, don't tell me that. Like I worked a year on this thing and I added the bucket list at like the last second. Um, but it's a fun book. I always tell people it's not meant to sit on your shelf and collect dust after you've finished reading it. Like you want to break the binding and take notes in the margins and, you know, just go to town on it, dog ear it as you're going through. Um, and my hope with it is that people will get off the couch and stop watching these paranormal investigation shows and actually go outside and explore these places for themselves, create their own adventure and maybe come to their own conclusions about these haunted locations um some of my favorite places in there um we have um the ghost light theater is one of my all-time favorite places here in western new york um it's a tiny little community theater um i've actually been a member of it for 15 years now and um it's got tons of stuff um you know people have captured ghosts on camera multiple times now uh, where you look at it and you look at where the photo was taken and you think to yourself, like, there, like no one was there. This, there's nothing here now to create, you know, a human-like shape. Like, this is 100% something unexplained. Um, 
There have been strange noises. People have reported hearing their names called. Um, objects move all the time. Um, I've seen things with my own two eyes there. And um, my favorite story there um, was one that I experienced myself. Um, I was on a private paranormal investigation. It was me. It was my parents, the owner of the theater, his kids. It was a very small group of theater members. And we were going through, and this was after my brother had passed away. And he had been a member of the theater. He basically grew up there. He was best friends with the director and the owner's kids. And as I was walking through, I was holding an EVP session. And I just thought out loud to myself, you know, if Jed, my brother, is going to be anywhere in the universe right now, it's going to be here. I'm here. My parents are here. His best friend is here. Everyone that he loves more than anything in the world, they're all here under one roof right now. So he would be here. So I just kind of said, you know, dude, if you're okay, can you just let me know that you're okay? I just need to know that you're okay. And even as I said it, I was like, oof, like, you know, that's a slippery slope. You don't necessarily want to reach out because if I do get an answer, you know, you don't know if it is really him. And if it is, then I become obsessed with talking to him for the rest of my life. Um, so it's the only time I've ever done this. But after I asked the question and stuff, I kept walking through. I was down in the basement. And the next day, as I'm listening to my EVP recordings, I'm listening to that question. And a voice comes through that sounds like my little brother when he was about 11 years old saying, I'm fine. And it sounds like him crystal clear. There's an echo in everything. And I was just flabbergasted. That night before, my one girlfriend, who is very lucky with photographing things, she always captures stuff in her photos. I don't know how she does it. I've never captured a ghost or anything on my camera. It's not my, it's not my talent or gift at all. I can't do it. Um, but she captured a photo and she came up to me and she said, I don't want to upset you. And I'm thinking, oh gosh, what happened? Um, and she said, I think I found Jed. And she showed me this photo and it was my brother at about 11 years old. It's almost a carbon copy of a family photo that we have from his first day of school in about fifth or sixth grade. And like it's, you could see he's, you see like his long brown hair. He has a green shirt on. You can see his backpack. And it was amazing because where she captured that photograph is the exact same spot that I captured my EVP. So it was just really interesting to see two very different pieces of evidence coming together to kind of confirm what one thing said. Now you have two things kind of proving it. Um, so whenever I talk about locations here in Western New York um, that are featured in the book, the Ghost Light Theater is always the first one I mention, just because it has a special place in my heart, but I've also captured the most incredible evidence there. Mm, well, I mean, I really admire you for doing that, because I suppose as soon as you engage in that idea, you're circumscribing what your relative is experiencing, aren't you? You're you're potentially categorizing them as a spirit. I mean, it sounds like that was a positive experience for you. For me, it definitely was. I, you know, I was raised, you know, a good Christian girl. Like when you die, if you're a good person, you go to heaven. And if you're bad, you go to hell. And then after my brother got sick and passed away, I definitely started questioning things and wondering. And I got to the point where I needed proof of life after death, that there's something more, you know, that's waiting for us on the other side, whether it's, you know, it's heaven or nirvana or reincarnation or just returning to the universe. So the paranormal, which I was already interested in, kind of seemed like a no brainer, just because there are ways to possibly, you know, again, it's all theoretical, but there's ways to measure ghostly activity and to possibly communicate with spirits. So it just seemed like a no brainer for me to kind of dive more into it because I was already kind of, I, my toe was already in the paranormal. So why not jump all the way in? And for me, again, I knew even as I was asking the question, this is the only time I am going to specifically reach out to him because I don't want to open that can of worms. Um, but as soon as I heard his voice and I saw that photo, it was a reassurance for me that there is something after death, whatever it is. There is something there. 
And again, I'm not the only person that's questioned these things. So if I can try to not necessarily bring answers to people, but at least show people my experiences and let them come to their own conclusions about it, it could be helpful not just for me, but for other people. And for me, hearing stories of the paranormal and other people's experiences, it's the only thing that brings comfort to me right now. You know, and that might change over time, but I'm five years out since he passed away. And I'm still looking to the paranormal for answers. And they're the only things that really help me fall asleep at night, um, knowing that, you know, there is something more out there. Mm. Well, thank you for telling us about that on this episode. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, I I find the more that I study and read about these subjects, not just ghosts, all the all the paranormal, really, it's, I find that I'm I'm getting a sense of, of what reality is like it's it's and it, and it can be comforting because you're getting a, a sense of the world around you and it becomes a bit less scary yeah and it's almost ironic where you're learning these things that seem so magnificent and so extraordinary and unbelievable but so many people have had similar experiences or witnessed similar things that you start to realize we don't know everything and that's strangely comforting in a way yeah yeah exactly <laughs> So going back to your book, just tell us a little bit about Western New York State itself. What is it like? <laughs> um, so basically, it's kind of a small town vibe. Um, people always think of, you know, New York and they think of the Big Apple. They think of New York City. Um, but other than New York, um, the next biggest city is Buffalo, which is in Western New York, but it's pathetically small in comparison to New York City. Um, so even though it's the second biggest city, it still has a very small town vibe. Um, the city itself um, was founded, I mean, it wasn't founded, I guess, but people inhabited the area um, in the 17th century. Um, and um, it was obviously a very heavy Native American land. Um, even the names of the towns are very Native American. I live in a town called Tonawanda, and people will see it and they'll be like, how do you say that? Um, so, you know, we have places like Tonawanda, Cheektowaga, uh, Skajakwita. So these are like the names <laughs> that we um, have here because of the 17th century Native Americans who lived here. Um then eventually, of course, the Europeans settled in. Um, but the French and Indian War, the uh, American Revolution, and the War of 1812 were all fought around here. Um, so we do have a lot of history in regards to the wars. Um, we actually have a fort nearby called Old Fort Niagara um, that was there for all three of the wars um, that saw action in all of them. So there's a lot of history in regards to military um, as well as just old Native American history that goes back, you know, even further than any of us can really imagine. And you do see a lot of that in, you know, burial mounds and even how trees are misshapen and deformed, how they used it for directional um, devices. So um, the book itself, I focused on eight counties in Western New York, um, and they're all very, very different. Some of them are you know, a bit more built up. We have Niagara County that has Niagara Falls, and that's very touristy. Um, you have Erie County with Buffalo, which has, you know, the big city. But then you have um, places like Cattaraugus County, all of these <laughs> very Native American names, Cattaraugus County and Allegheny County, um, which are very wooded and um, a lot of hiking trails and state parks. So it's a really interesting mix of big city with lots of stuff to do and lots of tourism, but then also ways for you to kind of break away from it. And it's a lot of farmland. And um, it's it's interesting because it also offers very different hauntings, um, whether it's the violence of war or sanitariums from sickness and disease or a quiet little country cemetery that no one would think of as they're driving past it, but there's actually tons of stories that come from it. So it's a little area. Growing up here, I hated it because... I think every teenager hates where they live. Um, but after living overseas for several years, I came back to it and I love it now. I decided to write a book about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm kind of the same. I, I lived in a city for a while and I've recently moved back to my hometown. And 
you feel kind of protective of it, I think. it's um, You have that phase where you go away and you leave it for a while. And when you come back, you kind of see it through different eyes and you sort of become a bit, yeah, protective of it, in my experience anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. So have you found that where you live, the Native American history, is that something that's being rediscovered and more people are able to read about? Or has it always been there and just not as publicized? Um, I think, I mean, unfortunately, at least with our area, for years and years, it was definitely swept under the rug and kind of ignored. You know, whenever we talk about our region's history, it dates back to the early 1800s when the town, you know, the area was, you know, incorporated and founded. But if you go back, you know, you have these Native American tribes that date back thousands of years. Mm. Um, And probably within the last 20 years, I would say. Um, So as I was growing up, I was introduced to a lot of the different legends and folklore of the area. Um, My grandmother was obsessed with Native American folklore, so it could just be her. Maybe maybe I'm an anomaly, but I really feel like um, a lot of the places um, have Native American ties, especially um, the parks, the state parks, the hiking trails. And I find that the the area's Native American population, they're really taking back their culture that was stolen from them. Um, you know, I'll be the first to admit that the like Americans did not deal with the indigenous people well at all. They didn't do it at all. They were it was horrible. Um So I think in recent years, they're really taking it back and reclaiming it and sharing it with people who are curious about it, you know, because our history doesn't just go back 200 years. It goes back thousands of years if you're looking at the history of a region. Um, And it's almost unfair to exclude that because if you're looking at the whole timeline of the region, 200 years is nothing compared to 3,000 years. So you have to look at the 3,000 years and appreciate that and see how that affected the terrain and the people and the entire region on top of also the 200 years, which is cute, you know, oh, 200 years. Um, (laughs) So um, I think we're starting, very slowly starting to get more of an all-inclusive viewpoint, but we still have a long way to go in my opinion. Um, That's why I tried every single place that I researched that had any ties to um, local tribes. I wanted to really highlight the legends and the folklore and even the language um, of, you know, these local people because so many times they've been ignored. Definitely. And it's such a rich resource of information as well, especially if you're interested in the paranormal. I feel like it's somewhere you got to go. You got to go to the wellspring, haven't you? To if you and if it feels like you know, with the with the indigenous peoples of of anywhere, if they're the first people that have been living there and engaging with that landscape, they're going to know the the legends and the and the stories of that land, aren't they? And it, it, it feels like you know, it's a, it's a no brainer to kind of make make the most of that resource. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's a shame when people don't. It's a great resource that can only enhance your research and your investigation. So why not reach out and why not try to research that aspect of a location or an entire region? Because it's going to make your findings so much more fruitful and so much more enticing to a wider range of people. Mm. One place I think that's included in the book is the Eternal Flame Falls. Yes. Is it right to talk about that? (laughs) Sure. Um, So Eternal Flame Falls, a lot of people, as I was um, publishing the book and sharing places that were highlighted in it, they were shocked to find that this place was included in it because it's just a really popular hiking trail that people go to and they don't even think twice about it. Um, But basically, it's um, this little teeny tiny fire this little flame that doesn't go out um it's just a naturally occurring flame um and at first people are like oh you know that's not that unusual that's not that interesting you know there's a lot of you know naturally fueled fires all around the world the most famous one is the door to hell in turkmenistan it's just a very colorful terrifying name (laughs) um (laughs) but um what's interesting about the eternal flame fall here in western new york 
is that at least according to local scientists, um, the rocks at Eternal Flame Falls, um, they are not hot enough to basically maintain the the flame. And yet it still burns and they don't know why. Um, so that's just like an interesting little like, oh, that's unexplained. Why is this happening? Um, but according to the stories, um, you know, supposedly Native Americans lit the flame thousands of years ago. And when people visit it, um, if you manage to get to the flame by yourself, which is unlikely because people like to hang out by the area because it is so interesting and it's a beautiful site. It's actually behind a waterfall. Um, so it's like that interesting dichotomy of it's like water and fire and somehow they're working together to create this beautiful site. Um, but um, those who have visited, they've told me, you know, if you're standing at the, the flame, you can sometimes hear chanting or humming or even like drums in the distance. Um, and other people have reported seeing shadow figures like kind of darting around the area where the flame is, as well as on top of the waterfall that trickles down over the flame. Um, they usually say that's at night when they go. And I always say, I don't recommend going at night um, because it, <laughs> it is a very um, treacherous hike. It's not for, you know, people who aren't like really into hiking. Like you're kind of climbing over tree roots and you know going down some hills and you're gonna have to pause on your way back up because you realize that you're out of shape and you're ashamed um but it's just this really um peaceful place you know a lot of hauntings again have like sometimes you're nervous to go there this one is very very peaceful very calming um and it's interesting because it does have that connection to native americans um, supposedly lighting the flame all those years ago. Um, but I do always joke telling people to make sure they bring a lighter with them because sometimes the eternal flame does go out. Um, <laughs> so you have to like relight it. <laughs> um, so always bring a lighter with you just in case, because if you get there and it's not lit, it's kind of awkward. Right. Yeah. Well, that's how it keeps going, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I was gonna say, especially behind a waterfall and then spring when the snow is melting and the waterfall is really going. Yeah. That thing doesn't stand a chance. With that, I mean, do you think that that's the legend from the indigenous peoples? What quality do you think it has from your own experience? You know, it's so hard to say because some places that I visit, they have these amazing claims that people have captured things on camera and they have EVPs and they have this very um, quantitative evidence that they can show you. Um, and it's very difficult to argue um, whereas with this, it's more so people saying that they're hearing humming or chanting or singing, um, people claiming that they see shadow figures. And I am forever the skeptic. I'm, I, I am like Fox Mulder from X-Files. I want to believe, but I'm not going to believe that everything is paranormal. Um, with this book, any place that had any sort of claim, I put it in there so people could come to their own conclusions. Um, and with this, you know, in my mind, I think, you know, if you're down by the waterfall, you know, noise travels very well over water, across water. So someone could be above you hiking down to the flame and they could be talking or they could be singing and you don't know. You know, if you're seeing shadows darting around a flame, well, fire creates shadows. So I, I do try to come up with reasons why this could be happening. Um, but multiple people have also shared these experiences, you know, different people from different walks of life. So you also have to take that into account that, you know, just because you can come up with a logical reason doesn't mean that it's not valid. And the fact that there are Native American stories surrounding it also adds a bit more stock into what people are saying. Um, as opposed to, you know, just some, you know, drunk kids who go down to the flame and they say that they see a ghost. Okay, I'm not going to believe that necessarily. But if there's thousands of years of stories surrounding it, that's something I might pay more attention to. Hmm. And I, I do find that a lot of experiences that people have by their very nature are subjective. I think it can be hard at times for there to be objectivity in these kind of things. And that's not to say that they haven't happened. It's just that they've Sometimes they happen to one person and it's it's hard to kind of move from that subjectivity to it being objective. And in a way, it almost doesn't need to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and again, like paranormal experiences are so personal. You know, you could be sitting in a room and you could 
you know, think you hear something or think that you you see something and no one else no one else in the room experiences it. You know, you could take that one of two ways. Either, you know, you're crazy, you didn't really experience it, or it was meant to be something personal just for you. And I think that's kind of the takeaway from the paranormal is that you need to have a a a, a good head on your shoulders. Not everything can be paranormal because when something is paranormal, that's extraordinary. Something that you can't explain away. You know, same thing as, you know, so many times people feel something or, you know, they feel a hand on their arm or a hand in their hair or they smell something. You can't prove these things. You can't um, record these things. So when you do capture something that you can record, like a photograph or an EVP, um, that's so exciting because it doesn't happen all the time. So when it does, you can really appreciate it. And that's something that you are able to share with other people. So, and one thing I have found is that I feel like people always believe that the paranormal is very isolating. You know, oh, I'm the only one that ever experienced anything like this, or my family thinks I'm crazy. Um, but as soon as you ask someone about their experiences, they open up to you, you know, just like at the Drover's Inn when I was trying to figure out like what ghosts are here and every single person started talking at the same time. It's like this really interesting, unifying thought process that suddenly you're not alone. Suddenly you're not crazy. Here's someone else that believes the exact same thing or a similar thing and have possibly experienced something similar. So it's a very unifying experience. That's also very, very personal. Um, because everyone's experiences are personal. People might be more sensitive and pick up more things, whereas someone might be more skeptical and not pick up more things. Um, so and it's, it's hard to find that middle ground of what is paranormal, what is not paranormal, and kind of weed out, you know, the overexcited people versus the not at all excited people and finding that happy medium. And maybe that's where the answers lie. But again, it's so hard to tell because no one's an expert. There are no facts in this. We're all kind of walking in blind, trying to figure out our own way and to see what works best for everyone. Mm. In my experience, I think you're right. It's just, it just takes one person to maybe open up and, and talk about something and be that kind of first weirdo. And then, other people exactly um <laughs> other other people are more comfortable and they'll open up a bit and that's what i find i mean and, and usually i'm that person so me too me too it's okay <laughs> <laughs> cool so i think we've got time for one more thing from the book which i found really interesting because it involves a flying humanoid um the, 19, <gasps> the 1920 incident Yes. So this was actually um, not in my first draft of this book. I actually um, very briefly published uh, a first edition of this book. And at my very first um, event, someone came up to me and told me about this. And I was so upset because I was like, where were you for the entire last year of my life as I was researching this? Um, so I very quickly researched it as best as I could and added it into the second edition. So it's like a second edition, like two weeks after publication, which is just weird. Um, but the 1920 incident, it was actually reported in all these different newspapers. Um, one of the witnesses was a police officer. So right away, that really, you know, makes people take notice that it's someone, an upstanding member of the community, a police officer who is you know, sworn to be honest and tell the truth. And here he is talking about this bizarre thing. Um, basically, in North Tonawanda, the town directly north of me, um, in 1897, there was this, like you said, a flying humanoid um, that just kind of terrorized the citizens of the town for um, 10 days. Um Sorry, it was actually in the 1920s, not in 1897. Um, that's when the town was founded. Um, so in the 1920s, um, this flying scarecrow is how it was described in the newspapers, um, would fly through the town, kind of wreaking havoc. Um, 
And it would even like stop traffic and multiple, multiple people saw this thing. Um, and eventually um, the local bicycle club decided to get together and like, I imagine they grabbed like their torches and pitchforks and like tried to like chase this thing down. Um, but apparently they managed to surround it in, you know, in the town square and uh, with everyone watching it, this creature, um, again, some people described it as a scarecrow. Some people said it looked like um, a, a humanoid wearing like a Native American um, headdress. Um, obviously, there were no photos taken of it, unfortunately. Um, so we have to go off of these <laughs> bizarre descriptions. Um, and they watched this thing fly straight up into the air and just disappear into the clouds. Um, it was never seen again. Um, and it's one of those things where, you know, it, it was 100 years ago now. Um, so no one really remembers it anymore. No one was there or no one is around today that was there at the time. So it's all kind of folklore, legends, basing it off of newspaper articles. And this local bicycle club is actually still functioning. Um, and if you go in there every so often, you'll mention it. And you'll kind of, kind of see them like puff up their chests as if they're proud that they helped. And in your mind, you're like, you weren't there. Like, calm down. Um, <laughs> but it's one of those things where it's not exactly a cryptid. You know, it's not like, you know, a Bigfoot or Sasquatch or a giant cat. You know, this is a very singular experience where I, I've never heard of anything else like this with like flying scarecrows and yeah, or anything like this. So it's completely unexplained and no one knows what the heck it was. And again, like it lasted for 10 days with all these people seeing it and people witnessing it disappear into the clouds. And it's not like nowadays where, oh, you know, some kid strapped a Halloween decoration to a drone and, you know, ter terrorized the town for the day. It's the 1920s. You know, how would you, how would you do this? It sounds like a Scooby-Doo villain. It does. <laughs> Someone trying to scare some people into selling their property cheaply or something. It does. Yep. And you have to try to unmax them. I would have gotten away with it too. <laughs> In terms of ideas for what it might have been, I mean, I know that a couple of decades before then, there was a sort of an airship flap in America, wasn't there? Of people seeing sort of airship type vessels. And I suppose, I mean, potentially it could have been someone like a genius in a suit, some sort yes. of Tony Stark of the 1920s being a <laughs> dick, <laughs> just messing around with people. Yeah. And it's so weird because so many people have come up with different theories. And I'm like, well, yeah, I guess so. Like, nothing else makes sense. Have you heard of a guy called Walter Bosley? Possibly. Go on. He's done some research into a chap called Charles Delshauer. Um, some drawings were found, I think it's in Texas somewhere. Then Charles Delshauer was this German guy who lived in America. And he was an artist. And he drew some weird pictures of flying machines, basically. And Walter Bosley is a... He's a is a researcher. He's written books about him and a whole series of books about sort of almost like a secret history of America, basically. And, and in that, Charles Delshaw was involved with a, an organization called the Sonora Aero Club. And one of them was a German guy called Peter Menes, I think. And this was in the mid 1800s. In it might even have been in Colorado, actually. And this guy Menes was a, was a genius, and he had invented this material called soup, not S O U P S U P E, and it was like it was like this miracle material that allowed flight, basically. And I'm, I mean, I don't know, but I mean, thinking of that of this incident, I mean, may, maybe someone had this. I'm really open to the idea of of society being more technologically advanced than we're let on, because we've had the, I mean, we've had the electric yeah. car for over a century, but we're just not yes. allowed to use it. So I, I am open-minded to the idea that there might have been technological advancements a lot earlier yeah. than we're allowed to believe. And perhaps it was just some mad, mad scientist who wanted to mess around with the locals until he met the bicycle club and they, and they, ran, him out, and they ran him out of town, which is brilliant. Yeah, I, I love right? that he got defeated by a bicycle club. That's just, that's perfect. Right. And if they're anything like the bicycle club today, they're not intimidating at all. So... <laughs> <laughs> So, oh, but no, yeah. he'll, come back. he'll come back after 150 years and right <laughs> yeah wow but i know i love that one that's so good well amanda thank you so much for being on the podcast it's been a pleasure thank you so much for having me it was it was wonderful 
If people want to find out more about you and your blog and your book, how best do they do that? Um, so my blog is spookeats.com. Um, so that's S-P-O-O-K-E-A-T-S. Not Spooky Eats, just Spook Eats. Um, I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, and those are all also Spook Eats. Um, so nice and easy. And I always tell people um, if they know of any haunted restaurants, bars, or hotels. Um, and even right now, I'm doing a series of haunted hiking trails Um with the coronavirus kind of shutting everything down, I'm kind of focusing on places that you can go with social distancing and getting out and getting some fresh air. Um, so any hiking trails um, that anyone knows of, feel free to email me um, at spookeats at gmail.com. Um, I'd love to hear from you. And I'm always looking to add new places to my list of places that I have to go visit. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to include that all in the show notes. Thank you so much. Uh, you're very welcome. Thanks again, Amanda. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. That was a really fun interview. Seeking out delicious food alongside investigating the paranormal may seem like odd bedfellows, but with this kind of thing, you have to be open-minded and Amanda's approach to engaging with the supernatural is definitely that, which you can see from the Spook Eats blog. As was mentioned during the interview, at the time of recording, the world was in the midst of a global pandemic so not exactly the best time to go out and find your local haunted hostelry. But I'm sure things will get better, and soon. Stay safe, everyone, and take care of each other. If you'd like to get in touch with me at SphereHQ, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. You can find Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod, and it's available on most of the well-known podcast platforms. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>